played on this tasty intro if I can remember what screen I have it saved on. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the Shameless Picture Show Podcast. I'm Michael Byers and with me, as always, is the Sutter Kane to my John Trent. <laughs> Nick Richards! Uh, before I get into what we're watching today, I just want to throw out a very special uh, uh, thanks to uh, our first our first Woo! ever sponsor. Uh, they are accompanied by the name of Vinegar Syndrome. Um, uh, Vinegar Syndrome is a restoration and distribution company uh, with catalogs of hundreds of feature films produced primarily between the 1960s and 1980s. We'll get a touch a little bit on them uh, later on because I'm going to talk about one of their releases uh, that I've seen. Nick hasn't, so we'll see how well that goes. <laughs> um and uh yeah they they were really cool they 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 liked the idea of our podcast and uh they're pretty big uh, they're pretty uh respected company so the fact that they took a chance on us is pretty pretty fucking awesome we're gonna edit in abba at that point right take a chance on me i can i can totally (laughs) okay if you change your mind, take a chance on the first in line, take a chance on the unsteel free, take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got your place to go, when you feel down, if you're all alone. today's episode we'll be discussing john carpenter's highly underrated in the yes. mouth of madness released in 1994 from a script written by michael de luca the film tells the story of an insurance investigator by the name of john trent who's hired by a big-time publisher to locate their most successful author sutter kane who appears to be missing last anyone heard kane was finishing his most recent book called in the mouth of madness Kane is very successful, but it's said his work can drive some readers mad. Accompanied by Kane's editor, Linda Stiles, Trent sends off to the fictional town of Hobbs End to find Kane and retrieve his book. The film, while considered a flop at the time, made the Cahier de Cinema's top ten list of 1995 and is, in my opinion, one of Carpenter's last great films. because the stores could not meet the demands of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Who's the guy that writes horror books? You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. This it's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. Out next month. 
Williams are Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, Jurgen Procknow. That's a fun name. Vito the and Carpathian. And, what is that? Vito the Carpathian. I think I'm not. Sure. I'm not very familiar with Jurgen Procknow. <laughs> Sorry. And, and uh, Charlton Heston's also in the movie too. Yep. <laughs> Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Um, so this was on my shame list, which bums me out because John Carpenter is probably one of my favorite, uh, filmmakers of all time. Yet there's still a couple black spots in his career that I have not seen, but I've seen most, if not all of his, his big ones throughout the eighties. Um, but I loved this movie, Nick. I'm, I'm so glad, glad you told me. I'm glad you told me to watch this movie. That, this was fantastic. That challenge list that I put together was very catered towards. Uh, we're we're starting to get to know each other's tastes a little bit better, but they're yes. definitely in my uh, like top realm of horror. So it's it, they're not even really horror as much as they are psychological thrillers that I kind of. I don't know. I, I think. Way. I think uh, In the Mouth of Madness actually might be one of Carpenter's scarier films. Yeah, it, it this goes into a conversation that we've had before of just the difficulty of defining what horror is. I, I guess if you go as simply as if it's scary, then it's horror. You know, there's that casts a much wider net. Yeah, and it's also difficult too because, like, I am one of the, like... I'm not one of those horror purists who believe that like horror. Th- this film, th- these, this film is a horror film. This film is a thriller. Like in my mind, a thriller is just a classy horror film. Right. Like, yeah. When when Silence of the Lambs was sweeping at the Oscars, everyone kept, started calling it a thriller, and it's like it's a fucking horror film. <laughs> right. A horror film is winning all these Oscars. Don't try to class that shit. <laughs> um. I personally think if the movie fills you with any sort of tension or dread, it's a horror film. Like, sure. I've heard some people say, oh, it's a tension film. It's, it's, it's a fucking horror film. <laughs> and shouldn't all films have tension? Yeah, you, you'd hope. You know, <laughs> I imagine the Care Bears movie has some tension to it. Okay, the Care Bears, the sequel to it, uh, the Care Bears movie 2, get what you're talking about. <laughs> that was a pretty scary, lame-ass cartoon, Nick. <laughs> so fuck you. <laughs> um... Oh, God, there's just so much to talk about with this movie. I'm trying to, like, think, process where we should begin. Well, um, you've already stated that you really enjoyed it. Yes. Um, But I think kind of a reoccurring concept that we've come up against in our show to date is how did it meet up against your expectations? Um, It's funny. This is a movie I've had on my shelf for a long time, and I bought it because it was John Carpenter, and it was one of his movies that I do very little about. Like I said, his output, like, think about John Carpenter. He has has had one of the greatest track records of not only any filmmaker, I'm sorry, not uh, of not only any horror filmmaker, but of any filmmaker. You think about it from 1976, is I think when Assault on Precinct 13 came out, through like 1988, which is like Big Trouble in Little China, hit after hit after hit. It's prolific. I mean, in, in the realm of Spielberg from that same era, Spielberg continued on and had a bit of a... Uh, Less, certainly less dark, but um, the the way that he could churn out movies that a very large segment of people could relate to in one way or another, uh, 
you know, I, I'd put them in that same category. No, exactly. Like, in a lot of ways, John Carpenter is the Spielberg of horror. Like, uh, just because the, no one has as much consistent but yet hidden style like both of them do. They can handle directors. And oh, some of their work is before it's t- – like, it's, it's honestly before it's time or – and in a weird way, Mouth of Madness, I feel like if it would have came out in the 80s, it would definitely be one of his classics. But the 90s was like a weird sinkhole of suck for, when it comes <laughs> to horror. So, like, 95, that was right around the time that Scream came out. So That was horror's like, awkward teen years. Yeah, so, like, John, people weren't, like, expecting John Carpenter to throw out, like, a gothic horror film about an author yeah. with and- Sam Neill. Can I also take a moment to, though everyone knows this, I think it doesn't get brought up enough, how badass is it that John Carpenter does all of his own soundtrack work? I have always thought this. One of the greatest experiences of my life was last year, uh, my wife and I, we went to go see John Carpenter live as he was playing his hits. Like, because it was a mixture of his hits and, like, you know, from his movies and then, like, things that he's been putting out recently with his son. Which okay. is kind of cute because him and his son are playing together. <laughs> right. and John Carpenter has like this great like carpenter dance that he does when he's on stage because he's really getting into it. And like nothing gives me goosebumps nearly as much as like hearing the assault on Precinct Thirteen <laughs> theme come on and like my the hairs of my arms stand up. And then like they like rockify some of it because then you'll just like there's always guitar in that song, but then they'll just like start shredding on the guitar. <laughs> I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I might have to throw like a sound clip of the Assault on Precinct yeah. 13 theme in here because it is fucking baller. <laughs> director producers even director actors but not a lot of director soundtrack composers that is mm-hmm. that is very cool i also think it's i'm i'm starting to believe that carpenter has a chubby for like for for metal because like <laughs> he, he he's been like his later film started infusing more and more some like some metal uh, notes into yeah. soundtracks and I was like I think Carpenter's a secret heavy metal fan <laughs> well and he doesn't just do a good enough job either you could very easily say well the fact that he's directing and music which is a very different kind of art he did a decent job no I mean the the Halloween theme is so iconic mm-hmm. and up there with Jaws or any of the other you know these where, where you hear a few notes and you know exactly what film that's from. Yeah, and there's been other filmmakers that have done their own music. Robert Rodriguez composes the, the scores to his own films. I wasn't aware uh, that. Yeah, he, does all, he has his studio in his, and he also edits all of his own films too. And I think that might be one of my re- my problems with him. Yeah. is he, It's all too personal. Like, since he does everything, no one's there to tell him, you know what, maybe, this, maybe you should cut this yeah. scene down. Uh, and then uh, 
I don't know if he does all the composing, but he will write pieces of music. Is uh, Clint Eastwood? He plays piano, so he'll okay. write some pieces of music for his films. Just Just Whedon also has done some of his own writing. Uh, that music. being said, how many of those of those filmmakers can you point out a piece of their music and be like, "Oh, that was Joss Whedon," or "That was Robert Rodriguez"? Yeah. Yeah. And John Carpenter is he is uh, he is a rock star. <laughs> especially now that he's touring and right yeah legitimately a rock star yeah um <laughs> uh, i completely got lost in a a, a fellatio session of john carpenter there so what were we talking about so yeah and that's our show uh, that was the john carpenter hour of nick and mike <laughs> um i have a couple of my usual kind of like oh did you catch this little thing that might mean nothing but really intrigued me kind of notes uh, okay but oh uh you mentioned uh the screenwriter in your opening uh yeah also wrote a film that we mentioned very briefly in our buffy episode freddy's dead part freddy's i love freddy's dead so it's, many people hate that film <laughs> it's it's the freddy film to watch if you like the like stand-up comic freddy yeah like there, there, I, I agree. There's a very slow transition from pure horror Freddy in the original through to like, you know, what's the deal with kids getting sliced up by dream murderers, Freddy, from six, <laughs> and then it jumps right back to the, you know, that pure horror Freddy in uh, New Nightmare. Yeah, and um, no, I, I like, I still love that scene where like Freddy is is drooling and playing Atari and goes great graphics. <laughs> totally. Like to me that that is just amazing. <laughs> Spoofing the this is your brain on drugs commercial with Johnny Depp's yep. cameo. All right, once again. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah! What are you on? Looks like a frying pan and some eggs to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff in Freddy's Dead. But anyways, uh, you know, Michael DeLuca, he, he did a lot, and he actually went on to become uh, <coughs> kind of a big-time producer. Like, yeah. um, you know, he wrote Freddy's Dead, and he wrote this film, and he was an executive producer on this film as well. But then, like, he did the long kiss goodnight, which I, I actually kind of love. And uh, he did, uh, he, he, he wrote Judge Dredd. <laughs> He's an executive producer on Boogie Nights, uh, Blade, Lost in Space, Pleasantville, American History X, Detroit Rock City. He, A lot of big ones. The greatest, the greatest film of all time, Little Nicky. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which I wouldn't be proud of, but, <laughs> but it's in there. <laughs> yeah, he, he, you know, he made some money. Right, I, I love that he did. He did Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, and then the next year he did Captain Phillips. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Anyways, that's Michael DeLuca. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a little in the mouth of Mandis anecdote. Okay, tell me your anecdote. Um, and. I'll preface it by saying I'm not somebody who has a lot of regrets in my life. Oh, God. I, I'm one that believes that the the moments in your life that you, you know, are kind of sad about tend to be learning experiences. 
Yeah. Uh, but this is one of the very few pure, unfiltered regrets of my life. Uh, it's it's my honeymoon. This is 15 years back now. and we do Your it. honeymoon is one of your greatest regrets in life. Just one moment of the honeymoon. Okay. And, I just want, I to, wanted to try to trick you into something. Yeah. <laughs> Love you, babe. Uh, and we did a little road trip. We went, we were, you know, in, living in Wisconsin at the time, but uh, drove to New, Ohio, did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, New York, bounced around. Oh, I've always the, wanted to go. The coast. And we went up to Toronto. Okay. And while we were in Toronto, we stopped at this really cool thrift store. The The selection they had at the time, there wasn't a whole lot, but I went over into the butch section and I found a just the dust jacket for the prop in the film, a hardcover book in the Mouth of Madness. What? And my, you know, I was, I was very, I was 19 at the time. I already had seen the movie and really enjoyed it, but like... I, I wasn't a filmmaker yet, so I didn't understand that the dust jacket was the only part of the prop and that they probably just wrapped it around any old book. So I saw the dust jacket and thought, oh, but the book's not there, so I, I'm not going to buy this. And to this day, once I realized, once it all clicked, I mean, I immediately regretted it, but then I regretted it even more when I realized that that's all there was to it. And I did oh. not buy the in the, the Sutter Kane in the Mouth of Madness dust jacket. Little naive Nick. Yeah. <laughs> mwah, mwah. That's actually really sad. I want to know it how is. they came, how they how they got a hold of it. Right. Actually. Or and did they even realize what it was? Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, but no, I guess what well, the, the best way to tackle this film was. Um, did you have more things you were going to ask if I noticed before um, I got into, like... There's a bunch a of little stuff, but I'm sure it'll come up in conversation. All right. The, the things I liked about this film is I'm always a fan of when you learn enough about a filmmaker that you kind of know what they like, and then you see their influences in there. Like, I love that this film, at the beginning, is a, is, is a pretty much... A, 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 it feels like a noir film, yeah. you know, with... Uh, Sam Neill, and then it just becomes like a psychological mindfuck movie. Yeah, with all the which, the framing devices in the beginning, where yep they you know he's in the mental institution, but he's and he's being interviewed talking about the past, and then you know there's the whole book framing of no, you're actually in the beginning of this story, and it jumps back to the beginning. But then there's there's framing devices within framing devices with other framing devices built in. It's really fascinating. But then that all dissipates early into yeah. the story, and, but it, in it's a way a, that works. It's also interesting, too, with the whole idea of a beginning in, in a uh, asylum because it's a very uh, Lovecraftian thing yeah. to do. Um, but then it also brings out in the whole aspect of an unreliable narrator. Can you believe anything that John Trent is even telling yep, us? Absolutely. Uh, and I also love um, <laughs> that... Um, well, you know, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. I feel like I've talked, mentioned that a lot. Halloween is one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, his work is awful. is usually very taut and tense. You know, everything is very deliberate, it's slow but not boring. Yeah. Uh, and I love that in this film, he he allows himself to go into 
for lack of a better term, these flights of fancy, but yet it never feels like it's without direction. Yeah. So it felt like he expounded upon a little bit of what he was trying to do in the thing, which the thing even feel it's very it's very it's very small, minimal, yep. intense, just of crazy creatures. This one it just feels like it has the biggest scope out of some carpenter film, even bigger than Escape from New York, because even Escape from New York felt very small in a lot of ways. Yeah. This just feels like he's allowing himself to open up a world a little bit more and but yet like i said never feels about direction he it, the film never felt like it stayed overstayed its welcome it was it moved very quick i something that i noticed on this particular watching that i never noticed in the past is they spend a lot of time with like not really anything moving the story along and and i think it's to build up this psychological tension which is nice they're the first half of the film, there's not a lot of um, exposition. There's not you get some in that the scenes where he goes in and he's talking with Kane's book people, um, but then when he's reading the books and having these flashbacks or not flashbacks, uh, dream sequences, and then even when Styles gets uh, introduced. Uh, into this car trip like this car trip takes a really long time where they just play with the the kind of mental toying the puppeteering that's happening on the way um all of that could have taken a lot less time um but at, you know as you said it never feels boring which is great yeah and like there's just uh, I kind of got like Wizard of Oz, Wizard of Oz vibes as they're trying to find ho- uh, Hobbs End, and like just that crazy, uh, <laughs> you know, dream sequence maybe I don't know like entrance to hell type thing that was going on with Styles driving, yeah. and then Samuel has that great line, oh were there already? <laughs> Who keeps a bike horn in their glove box? <laughs> exactly. That was so random. <laughs> It was, but or was it like um, this, this? Never occurred to me until just this second. But you know, uh, I think it goes without saying this episode is going to have spoilers. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, there's the bike that the, plays the a prominent the bike. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about the whole movie kind of being on a loop because of the ending, that could the the horn could be simply foreshadowing, or it could be yep. Sutter. Kane's character writing in that warning to uh, John, um, and uh, here here's the first of my little. Hey, did you notice this thing that may not be intentional at all, but I'm sure it is because I think that way. Um, so the the boy on the bike, he had two playing cards in the spokes of his wheel, right? Yes. Do you remember what those two cards were? Uh, I watched the movie like two weeks ago, <laughs> so no. Uh, one was the Jack. And one was a Joker. And Jack is another name for John. So huh. it could be uh, connecting John Trent's character to this this fool, this tragic fool that... Hmm. And maybe it means nothing. <laughs> maybe, but I, I kind of like where you're going with that. Though I want to talk a bit about... Like, as always, this episode's going to jump all around... <clears throat> Um, I want to talk about Sutter Kane a little bit uh, as a novelist before we get into some of the deeper themes of religion and whatnot. Yeah. I'm, um, I, I, I'm, my mind always goes back to the the opening scene where, where John Trent is reading the book 
I don't remember which book he's reading at the moment. He's reading one of Kane's books. Although they kind of hint that he read all of them, like in like one sitting. Right. <laughs> uh, that, um, you know, he's like, he has, you know, he's got this way of writing that really hooks you in, but he's like saying how many cliches there are. And I was like, I'm just, I like to imagine that Sutter Kane is actually just this hack novelist who just has this power behind him. Yeah. Because uh, if you think about it, like, he's, uh, John Trent is living in a book, uh, in a movie of horror cliches. Right. Treated differently, but it's like, here is this, the, uh, the, uh, an author that outsells Stephen King, even though in a lot of ways he kind of is Stephen yeah, King. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, some very intentional reference to that. Um, it, uh, you know, it's like, he's just, it's, it, he's just an, uh, he's a hack author who's just putting a bunch of cliches in his book. You know, as much as I like Stephen King, sometimes his books, will f- you, when you write as much as he does, every so often you're going to fall into a couple traps. Sure. But, like, I just I just love this idea that, like, Sutter Kane's actually not a good novelist. <laughs> he's just got the old ones behind him, yeah. so he's... <laughs> Which, and, and, you know, Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos has become its own cliche in a way. It's parodying itself. So if you have the genuine, like, you know great old ones conveying their madness thoughts to an author it would be cliches because it has become a cliche of itself mm-hmm. oh yeah no real quick uh, talking about Sutter Kane and uh, um, this is uh, I'm curious if you noticed this um, Sutter Kane has that line did I ever tell you my favorite color was blue I I drew extra attention to it in this episode, but couldn't come up with a particular. Well, meaning. well, first you, they had the very obvious scene where he's on the. It's one of my favorite scenes where he's on the bus and everything is blue. <laughs> yeah. And I found out through com through the commentary track that uh, they didn't put a blue filter on; they just painted everything blue. I assumed that it was a combination of the two, but I could tell that their clothes had been swapped yeah. out with blue versions of what they were wearing before. But I was I was trying to draw attention to that as well, and uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I noticed this at least once or twice throughout the movie. Whenever they had a close up and on the actor's eyes, their eyes are blue now. Oh, I did. I, you could see the the irises and pupils starting to split and divide in some of the people. Yeah. But so I, like I didn't catch that. Proving, I guess it's proving like you know the power that Sutter Kane has because like yeah. whenever they did a close up of an actor's eye face, their eyes are blue. Huh. That's cool. I, I've only noticed it once or twice, but like it makes me want to go back and see if that that theory is correct. Right. I know uh, they. I, I certainly know that they pay a lot of attention to the eyes, particularly with people that have read it. They have the the blood coming out of the corners of the eyes. They have the eyes splitting, um, and and there's certainly even the ones where the pupils weren't dividing. They had some kind of dreaminess to them that you. A sense that they were a symptom of this change that was happening in them, but I didn't, in particular, notice that they were blue. That's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a, a little thing that I noticed. Um, um, but um, I'm just kind of going through my list now and just mentioning things I, yeah. I, I really liked. <laughs> like I, I, I really love the uh, uh, the Stephen King and over the overly done H.P. Lovecraft vibe, especially because at the time where Lovecraft wasn't adapted as often, like right. you had Reanimator and um, God, um, there was another one that the same director of Reanimator did. I cannot think of a Stuart Gordon did it as well. Um, 
I'd never seen it, so that's why I can't think of the yeah. title of it right now. But you had, and then you had this, but it wasn't like Lovecraft wasn't a big thing. I remember when I was in high school trying to find. I was in a bookstore in Chicago, trying to find Lovecraft, and there was none. Like he wasn't as easy to find. Yeah. But now it's like, there's like the podcasts dedicated to just Lovecraft. Right. Uh, did you catch the Lovecraft reference in the title of the movie? Yeah, I don't remember the exact title of his, of his story, but isn't it like the Mountains of Madness or? Uh, well, Innsmouth is the name of a town that gets brought up in several well, Lovecraft yes, that, there's that stories there's Arkham as well. Yeah. So in the mouth of madness, very easily, you know, turns into Innsmouth of madness. Yeah, there's, he also has a book, uh, something like along the lines with the Mountain of Madness. Hold on. I, uh, I've got it pulled up, I believe. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Actually, uh, At the Mountains of Madness, he has okay. a book. And then, actually, from what I read, too, Sutter Kane's novels have similar titles to H.P. Lovecraft stories. So, like, The Whisper in the Dark is The Whisper in Darkness, The Thing in the Basement, The Thing on the Doorstep. Nice. Haunter Out of Time, Haunter of the Dark slash Shadow Out of Time. So. Okay. Uh, and, and apparently from... Oh, continue. Uh, Hobbs End, too, apparently has... I wasn't able to track down any particular sources, but Hobbs End has apparently been used in several um, stories as a place of, of demonic influence, or uh, Old Hob is another name for the devil. Um, um, I, I took my, my first thought, though, was when they went to, like, was it New Hampshire? Right. Uh, which that really fantastic scene of him just like, oh, I, if I cut these out, I can make this state. Uh, I love and that. <laughs> it, um, it's funny. I looked at it like he built it, and I'm just staring at it. I was like, what the fuck is it? Amanda goes, it's New Hampshire. It's like, how the hell do you know it's New Hampshire? Because she's like, I went to school. It's <laughs> <laughs> a it's a great game. You you find the place, go to the town, and get a Sutter Cane lunchbox. <laughs> um, but my first thought was like it was making fun of Stephen King a little bit, how everything is set in Maine, and yeah, I, you know I think he's got like his oh, main towns he uses and Love <laughs> his main towns. Yeah, Lovecraft sets a lot of his stuff in Massachusetts. Yep. So which kind of you know pins New Hampshire as this midway point between the two. I knew that uh, um, both King and uh, was Maine and H. V. Lovecraft was Massachusetts. I never thought of New Hampshire as being like. In the middle. Yeah. Real quick, unrelated, kind of related. <laughs> Mentioning earlier that you found that, that book sleeve in Canada. Where were you in Canada? Uh, Toronto. That's near Ontario, right? I don't know. I don't think so. Or is I'm that in asking. Ontario? Is Ontario it a region? Be. or a, I'm not a... I'm, on, I'm only asking because I'm on the Wikipedia page right now for In the Mouth of Madness. It was shot in and Canada, right? It, part of it. Yeah. The exterior of the black church seen in Hobbs End is actually the Cathedral of Transfiguration, which is an amazing name. Yeah. It is a Slavic, Byzantine, Rite, Roman, Catholic, former cathedral located in Markham, Ontario. Huh. So. Maybe you are near it. I don't know. I could have been. <laughs> um. I, I keep getting distracted because of the the, the yard work outside, yeah. so I'm I'm apologizing now if this doesn't make complete <laughs> sense. But um, um, 
So no, I really like the uh, the kind of commenting on the popularity of Stephen King with the uh, the influence of Lovecraft. And from what I read somewhere, it was whenever uh, Sam D was reading Sutter King's work out loud, he was actually just reading Lovecraft. Nice, <laughs> uh, which is a nice little um, um, you know. Reference, yeah. and then um, there's that bit. You know, speaking of spoilers, um, there's that bit in the end where Sutter Kane actually like tears himself out of reality, and that door that was such a bad effect. Yeah, <laughs> that pulsing door pulls away, and you can see the words of the novel on the opposite side. Which, that and, was super cool. <laughs> I, I was trying to read it, and there's a bit about like. Somebody who was bald, who wishes he had hair, and I, I, I was trying to piece the bits together, but I wondered what the source was of that uh, copy that yeah, they used. I'd be interested too. And uh, before we get into like the big themes of the book, I want to talk about um, uh, the hotel they stay at, or uh, okay. like I think it's 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 own. That's also a Lovecraft reference. Uh, I'm not familiar with it. I had to look it up, but uh, Mrs. Pickman who owns it. It's a reference to Pickman's model, okay. which is a story, uh, a, a, apparently a famous story by Lovecraft. But like that whole bit threw me for a loop because you know at first like oh this sweet old lady, <laughs> and then like uh, uh, Styles talks about like what she ends up doing in the book where she murders her husband with yeah. an axe or something, and then that and comes... then at the end. <laughs> Like, when he's handcuffed to her leg and naked, <laughs> and then in the basement where she's this big fucking creature, and out and out in, like, the the, uh, the greenhouse. It just sent shows down yeah. my spine. Well, it was very effectively creepy as hell. When John Trent goes down into the basement and sees her, the, the monster, like, you, you could definitely see the creature creators from the thing. You know, that was definitely a, oh, yeah. a thing-esque monster that they had created yeah and it, it definitely feels like inspired by because i don't think it was the same makeup team because i think that k and b did the makeup on this okay but like um, uh i was i also became fascinated that i want to do a triple feature at some point because uh this is apparently the third installment of john carpenter's unofficial apocalypse trilogy which i didn't know existed oh. until now where it's the thing prince of darkness and this Huh. Where it's supposed to be him commenting on three different stages of the apocalypse. Interesting. Uh, so it's interesting that you made that connection with the thing. And then I, Prince of Darkness is one of the ones I haven't seen. Yeah, as well. I, I have not either. I've seen the thing. This one. Well, obviously. then we might have to add that to our uh, our own personal shame ah! list. <laughs> Do you want me to throw Pee Wee Herman sound? Yes, please. In there? <laughs> um, uh, but no, the whole the whole thing with the old lady just creeped the shit out of me. And then like with the the angry mob running outside the church, it's like whatever he was channeling when he made the fog, he was channeling again making this because yeah. it had a lot of very similar atmosphere. And that's what Carpenter does better than most other filmmakers. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I love Wes Craven, but he doesn't he can't create the same type of atmosphere right. that John Carpenter can. I loved like little things like the painting in that hotel that changes slightly at yeah. first. But then you you have the the Cthulhu creatures in it by the end, um, and just that that unease of things that should not be alive that have a life to it. Um, yeah, it, it could easily. I I also think they paid the right amount of attention to it. That's something that many filmmakers could very easily over overly emphasize. Um, yeah. 
I tend to like when they're underemphasized for people that are paying attention to go, wait a minute, wasn't that a little different? But he yeah. pointed it out enough that clearly the the average viewer would see it and notice it, but without, oh, this is so significant, and, you know, yeah. spoon it feeding was, it. it. It was subtle enough that by the end when they made it very obvious – like at that point, it felt earned, yeah. but it wasn't like a horror trope now, where like you'd be looking at the painting and then it'll quickly turn its head and look at you. Like it was just subtly changing. Yeah. And I, I feel like the reason he did it the way he did, where at the end, where he, you know, the last time you see it, it made it very obvious, because it's kind of the Hitchcock model, where um, Alfred Hitchcock, um, his 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 perspective was, you know, since he he grew up with. Uh, in Europe where, you know, things didn't have to be spoon fed to yeah. a lot of them, you know, he would make his films subtle enough that 80%, if not 90% of the audience would get it. But then he would add some sort of explanation in later on and people would be like, well, Hitch, why'd you do that? He's like, cause I want to get, I want to get 100% of the audience. Okay. So like, that's why at the end of psycho, they had that, that speech explaining Norman Bates and his, his mental state. He didn't need it. Right. But, if he wanted to get 100% of the audience on board, he added it. And I feel like that's kind of the John Carpenter way of doing things where he's like, I've got 90% of the audience. Let's get that extra 10% who are dummies okay. <laughs> <laughs> or who aren't paying attention. Um, real quick, I'm on, I'm on the Wikipedia page, and I noticed that Hayden Christensen played the paperboy. That's funny. What? Yeah. <laughs> you want a paper, mister? Town's that way. Um, wow. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, that that was a very uh, change in in pace from going to Hitchcock to Hayden Christensen. <laughs> uh, I, I I think now it's time that we should get to the the the, the big theme of the movie. Nick. Sure. Uh, John Carpenter commented on religion, right? And and pop culture as religion. Yeah, which is one of my favorite. It's the reason this is this after Halloween. This is probably one of my favorite John Carpenter endings of all time yeah. because of that. Well, it it does what um, a a lot of people have a lot of criticisms about the remake of the Rain um, or the American version of the Rain. I really That's the only one I've ever seen. I've really I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it had a lot of good style to it. Yeah, I really liked what both the ring and this did in bringing the viewing audience into the stair. Like it made yeah. them a palpable part of it where, um, by watching this film, you are now subject to the scary things that you saw in it. You've been infected. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, they made a lot of very overt references to the Bible and, and church and how, Sutter Kane's work is the new Bible, and um, you know if if w when Sutter Kane makes Trent the delivery boy, he's kind of turning him into the modern Moses. You know, yeah. take take my word and disseminate it amongst the people. I I, I don't remember where I copied this from, uh, so I'm so uh, I I forgot to put a. Uh... A, a credit so if the if the author of this if sentence is listening i apologize i'm not stealing your work i'm giving you credit just i don't remember who you are um and he they said what if religious texts like the bible gained all their power from the herd who read and believed in them 
And what if a populist uh, horror novelist was able to tap into the hive mind consciousness to the point that his reality becomes interchangeable with our own tangible existence? And I feel like that explains the film very well. Like, it's almost like, have you read American Gods? I know they just made a television show. I have not. But the whole point, idea of it is, you know, these gods. Say, say, uh, you know, I came from Ireland. Well, it's a bad example. I don't know what they believe in. (laughs) Say I came from India. And I brought with me my gods. I brought Shiva with me. I brought uh, Gishnu and whatnot. And that's what I believed in. That's what I put my faith in. But then as I, as after living in the United States, you know, railroads are, are formed. And I start putting my faith in that because that's what's going to bring me my salvation. Shopping malls are constructed. And I start putting my faith in that. So my gods become smaller and smaller and less powerful. And they're just fucking humans now at this point. And these go- these other powerful gods that I put my faith in are, are now stronger. That's the point of American gods. And that's what it kind of reminded me of here. It's like, you know, the Bible was once what everyone put their faith in. But what if I've written the new Bible? What if more people read me? It's almost a Freddy Krueger idea where it's only powerful if you believe in it. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Whoa. <laughs> uh, I also love that line in the uh, since it's this this felt like the most granted they mentioned religion throughout you know the Bible and everything so it's not no ver- it's not like the, it's not like this is a hidden theme right. or anything but uh the the line that really got to me is when um and to me my notes is Carter commenting on religion question mark <laughs> and it's when the man in the bar kills himself in front of John Trent and says I have to he wrote me this right. way yeah. he lost all control of what he needs to do because that's what the higher power thinks he should do but did he lose control? Because in order to lose control, you have to have had it in the first place. And if mm. he is purely, if we are to believe what Sutter Kane is telling us, that he has created Hobbes End and everyone in it, and and John Trent for that matter, um, there. Wait, John Trent wasn't real. Uh, according to Sutter Kane, no. Oh shit! Uh, when he's uh, in the church. I don't remember if it's the confessional conversation or it's... It might have been. I want to say it's just after. Uh, he basically tells him, no, you're one of my creations, and therefore yeah. you will do everything that I tell you to do. And I thought that was a great swerve. But yeah. uh, No, you make a good point. It's kind of like when you play The Sims, <laughs> and you t- and you take away free will. They can't do anything without your control. Yeah. It's, it's God mode, man. Yep. Uh, and and Sutter Kane himself admits that he didn't even realize that he had this power, that he was writing these books thinking that he was just making it all up, um, but then came to learn that he was merely a puppet of the great old ones. Yeah, and it's also interesting, too, like, so John Trent is a figment of Kane's imagination. Right. So Trent has to go to Hobbes End, to get the get the manuscript to bring back to Arcane Publishing to further end the humanity. <laughs> Does anyone find that that's just a weird circle of like, okay, you're writing this character to come get the book that you are currently writing to bring back to the publisher <laughs> so you can end the world because you are being controlled by an ancient race of monsters. You got a, like it just a real chicken like, or the egg, yeah, yeah situation. <laughs> like even to this day, it's like as much as I love this movie, I'm sitting there thinking, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> It, Especially because Styles has read most of it, anyways. But Styles, I guess, isn't even real. But it's like, wait, what? I'm losing me, John. I'm losing me. Uh, I, it's one of those things. It, it's a lot like uh, Donnie Darko in that sense. Like I could see every time watching this, 
working very hard mentally to figure out if there is a plot hole or not, and every time coming to a different conclusion. See, I feel like the thing is, is like, I feel like this film, this might sound bad, but I feel like I know exactly what I mean, even though it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this, film is a, this film is one giant plot hole, but it doesn't try to hide the fact that it's a giant plot right. hole. Right. It embraces like every, it. Nothing about this film should make sense, and to a lot of people, it doesn't. Like, um, I'm still on the Wikipedia page, <laughs> and uh, um, apparently, um, in the book Lurker in the Lobby, a guide to the cinema of H.P. Lovecraft, they uh, they they wrote that uh, no ref- no film reviewed in this book is so strongly divisive as In the Mouth of Madness. <laughs> This is a film people either love or hate. There seems to be no in-between. The film's weakness is the generic rock soundtrack composed by and performed by John Carpenter. You are wrong, right. sir. Yeah, boo. And the disjointed script and apparently that apparently left the actors as confused as the plot. And I was like, is that necessarily a bad thing, though? Because it's kind of like the Doctor Who thought process right. of it. Yeah. Where uh, the only the only actor that knew the entire plot of what was going to happen in the story was the actress who played River Song. Yeah, right. Yeah. She she has said that the, she's the only one who knew everything that was going to eventually happen. Everyone else is left in the dark, so they can act accordingly. If you're making a film like this, I don't want my cast to know what the fuck's going <laughs> on. They need to react as it's happening, and I think that's what makes Sam Elliott's rea- his reaction at the end of the film, where he's sitting watching the movie, so fucking amazing. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's kind of how his face was how I felt watching this entire movie. Just... <laughs> I think if you're if you're looking for the plot to make more sense, you're not. It, I mean, you could word it as it's not the movie for you, or but it. It's okay that there's this possible plot hole. I don't even. You'd have to work hard to convince me that it is a plot hole. Um, it's just cyclical. It feeds yeah. into itself. It's the Ouroboros of of plots however there was a moment when i was watching this i don't know if it was me or it was amanda it was, one, it was either me or my wife that said when we were watching it like because at the end i don't know if it was kane or yeah i think it was kane he was like well once everyone reads this book you know they're all going to be you know they're essentially humanity's going to end and it was either me or amanda who were like well what about those who don't read and then without a moment later they're like oh the movie comes out this week <laughs> boom ask and you shall receive but then I started thinking, it's like, wait, didn't they have to read it to like write the script? And I just have this idea, this crazy idea of like monsters writing and directing the film. And I love how they had the movie poster that that Trent walks by that has it listed as a New Line Cinema production. You see all those credits right in directed there. by John Carpenter, produced by Sandy yeah. King, and written by Michael DeLuca, who is the re- who are the three real people. And that, that's what one of those little details that helps convince you by the end that you are now subject to this madness. It is so deliciously uh, meta that yeah. I, I I was just like wallowing and just like mm, feed me more. <laughs> I want to bathe in the meta. Yes. Uh, I also want to comment real quick on Arcane Publishing. That just sounds very Lovecraftian. Oh, yeah. Um, and when one one of the first scenes when Trent goes in to meet with Charlton Heston and Styles, and uh, one of his first lines is, are you familiar with our Kane, meaning our author, Sutter Kane? But Arcane is, you know as most of you know, is this, like, you know, the the palpable power behind supernatural magic, you know, that 
So to mm-hmm. say, are you familiar with Arcane? Um, it's it's Trent whose character is defined by his ability to separate fiction from the real world. He spends the entire film saying, yeah, but that's pretend and this is real life. He's asked right up front, are you familiar with this mystical, magical power? Yeah. And um, while I was watching this movie, even though it's so very obviously inspired by uh, H.P. Lovecraft, and to a lesser but almost equally strong sense, Stephen King. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I couldn't help but think about, like, what would I do if I were given the ability to remake this? Like, while H.P. Lovecraft is more popular now than he ever has been, you know, there's a lot of things that keep the same. But, like, how would I want to update this? And my the only thought I could do is swap out Steve, the Stephen King references for Clive Barker. Sure. And I say this because the more you learn about Clive Barker, the more he sounds like Sutter Kane. He's a guy that just kind of like holds himself up in his in his in his house, paints, draws, and writes just these crazy things. Because he has said in an interview one time, he said he doesn't have writer's block, and he and he and he's and he wishes he could because he said there's a, he feels like there's someone grabbing him by the back of the neck, telling him he has to write this. Huh. And just the type of imagery that he has and the super psychosexual vibes, it's like he'd be the perfect type of person yeah. well, to have be part of this. And it's funny that we were talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street series and, and we had talked about very briefly New Nightmare because New Nightmare does kind of a similar thing to what we're talking about where um, Freddy begins terrorizing the actors that play the characters in the nightmare on elm street series it breaks that wall and the stare comes into our reality as a viewing audience yeah like i honestly feel like if the entire nightmare on elm street was a series was just the original and new nightmare it'd probably be a perfect <laughs> perfect uh but freddy's dead two man films. you would lose out on freddy's dead i, I love freddy's dead but there, it's not as well made of a movie as new nightmare is I actually think Doing Nightmare is a better movie than Scream. And it's John Carpenter, not John Carpenter, sorry, Wes Craven yeah, doing a similar story. S- Scream is its own beast. It is it is such a unique thing that doesn't really fit fully into horror and it doesn't really fully fit into comedy. But it's it, it's, I've never been able to place it. Uh, it's enjoyable. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I like it, but it always kind of floats for me. Yeah, is is always a movie and series just in general that I've always liked, but I don't love. Like I don't go crazy for it. Um, yeah, it's it's always been weird. I think that's the reason I've always preferred uh, New Nightmare because it it just honestly feels like Wes Craven taking a very similar meta approach, yeah, but treating it far more serious. And honestly, about a character, I think he characters he cares more about. Okay. Uh, because you know he created Freddy, he created Nancy, he created all these characters, he created that universe. Scream, he was a hired gun. Okay. And not say he didn't make it his own, but I don't know. Yeah. We should get him on the show. He's dead. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> we'll still get him on the show. Uh, we will have. That's to, right. I remember uh, that. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to like, uh, you know, raise the dead. <laughs> Did- which, 
We're going to become a far more popular podcast if we figure that out. <laughs> right. The, on this week's episode, Jim Morrison and Wes, and Wes Craven. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jim. Don't attack me. So, how badly... When, when they're at the church um, and all of the townsfolk led by Vito the Carpathian show up, fire off his shotgun... And the Dobermans start coming around the corner. How badly did you want to say, Smithers, release the house? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. But, like, my first thought was, like, when they were attacking people. And I was like, the puppy just wants to play. Because yeah. they, they never looked angry. And then I, I hopped over onto the commentary. And John Carpenter's talk is like, I hate working with dogs. <laughs> Especially in tax scenes. They never look real. <laughs> at first, I was made it because three came around the corner at first. And it had to me a bit of a, a Cerberus vibe yeah. to it, but then when others pour in after it, I think if it was an intentional thing, they wouldn't have had those follow-up dogs. To me, it just felt like an old trick that they used to use in old movies when they only have, like, say, five people and they want to make it seem like an army and they just have them running around a circle. <laughs> totally. Because it, it just, like, just kept coming and in weird waves. I was like, they're just running around. <laughs> it's the, the Hanna-Barbera background loop. Yeah. I did that. I used that one time in a, when I was in high school. Me and a friend were making a movie, and like he needed to have like goons jump out of a van, but he had three goons, <laughs> and it needed to seem like it was like enough to storm and take over a school. So I was like, let's just open both sides of the van and just have them run around. Yeah. Uh, what he made it better is the sun's going down, so you could see their shadows <laughs> going around the van. <laughs> We did a lot of split screen work. We'd set it up on the tripod and have half of them or all of them on one side, and then we'd do another take with all of them on the other side with slightly different costumes. And That's smart. I wouldn't have thought of that. It together. My, that would have worked better than my van trick. <laughs> oh, um, anything else about in the mouth of madness before we get to suggestions and then uh, vinegar syndrome? Um, I don't think so. Uh, as always, I really enjoy. Uh, lighter hands and the fact that uh, especially given his track record with movies like The Thing um, I, I liked that it wasn't a creature feature I liked that he took Lovecraft and could have very, very easily thrown in a bunch of creepy Cthulhu-esque monsters but really the only time they used it was when they needed to chase John Trent through that hallway um, and even then, you never really got a clear picture of it. It was these quick bursts kind of through the windows of this tunnel. Yeah, it's it's very gothic, which I appreciated. And, like, um, while there are creatures, like you said, it's not a creature feature. It's uh, lots of suspense and madness and so much meta that I just want to bathe in it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it, especially after I the whole it. Star Trek fiasco. <laughs> I didn't dislike Star Trek. What are you talking about? Oh, um, speaking of, I so I had a buddy come up to me. Uh, it was on our game night, and he kind of took me aside, and he's like, "So I've been listening to the podcast. I really like it." Hi, Randy. And you had your fist. You had your fist balled ready, up. Ready to say something. Ready to swing. Uh, hi, Randy. By the way. Um, hey, Randy. And he was he he wanted to mostly talk about Buffy. How kind of saying? By the way, Buffy gets a lot better. Like, you know, don't don't judge it based on the pilot. Um, and so I think between, that was kind of our, our analysis of our next generation experience, too, was I said multiple times, yeah, in hindsight, we really shouldn't have watched the pilot. 
So we might want to rethink when we do TV shows to possibly steer away from pilots because it seems to be well, kind of a catching point for us. Well, the only reason I usually stick to the idea of doing a pilot, pilot, and then I like to draw it to like if it's not a TV show that has a consistent story, we can like Star Trek, we could jump around. But the only reason the pilot me, uh, is important to me because like in case there's things introduced that are important. Sure. Like for example, like if if we ever do Cheers, I don't think the pilot's going to be important in that case. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Um, or like if we like, well, we don't need to do The Simpsons realistically. Right. But say if we had never seen The Simpsons, the pilot's not important. The pilot is like probably the worst episode in a lot of ways. So like I. I for Buffy, I guess maybe it wasn't necessary for Buffy because we knew the characters from the movie. But uh, so that was a, a goofy decision. But I, I still felt strongly that the pilot for Star Trek was needed. Yeah, and you know, I think one of our other references when we were discussing that was something like Breaking Bad or or The Walking Dead, where they are very um, they're building a, a narrative. It's not a bunch of one-offs. Um, yeah. Though again, like when, when you watch the walking dead, you know that they're in a zombie apocalypse, you know, that we don't necessarily need to see how it plays out, but we might want to. No, well, so, something like the walking dead, like say if someone like picked some walking dead fan picked their like three favorite episodes, it might only be a favorite episode because of connections they've made with characters they've gotten along with. Yeah. See, like I've got favorite episodes of Doctor Who that have really nothing to do with the character, like um shit, what was that what what was that uh uh Stone Angel episode? Was it don't was it was it don't blink? Don't blink. Blink and you're dead. Don't turn your back. Don't look away. And don't blink. Good luck. Oh, yeah, the, the Weeping I, Angels. I might be getting the title... Yeah, the I might be getting the title wrong. I was like, the, I love that episode. I don't, I, and I, you don't have to see a single episode of Doctor Who yeah. to appreciate that. No, I, I'm pretty sure it was called Don't Blink, where they're they're in the past, and the Doctor is like writing show- messages to them yep. through the. He shows up in like the last five minutes, <laughs> which I I thought was cool. But anyways, um, yeah, I think from here on out we'll pick and choose about which ones. That's that not to say like that we do won't them. do the pilot if we feel it's necessary. Um, yeah. But he was definitely Con- under the impression that, like, ooh, you start with the pilot. Oh, yeah, that's gonna color your <laughs> your experience. Well, at the same time, too, since this is a TV show about experiencing things for the first time, it, I feel like anyone who would have watched it on television had to start with the pilot. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad for when we did Twin Peaks that we did the pilot. Had we jumped into something else, like Twin Peaks without the pilot is. <laughs> Is a I couldn't even imagine. Like, I can't imagine. There's been people have told me that they jumped right into uh, Fire Walk with me about watching the show, and I'm like, oh god, how did you do that? I did end up with some uh, Twin Peaks spoilers though with the new series coming out, so I've kind of context clued picked out who killed her, um, but I'm excited mm. to see the process. Well, off air, you have to tell me. Who, and who I, I won't think tell it you is. whether or not you're right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I won't tell you. I'll be like, oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so uh, before uh, we talk about Vinegar Syndrome and one of their releases, should we give each other our recommendations for the week? Yes, I think uh, I didn't put any together, and I think doing a, a every other, you know, bounce around. This was on your shame list, so now it's your turn to turn it around on me and challenge me. Okay. So my, my thing is, I'm not just picking, let's see, how many do I have? Five. I'm not just picking five films. That, oh, I wonder if Nick's seen this. I tried to tailor it, like, if I was doing a double feature. Okay. Like, I'd show In the Mouth of Madness and Blank, or Blank and In the oh, Mouth of Madness okay. for a different reason. Okay. So uh, my first pitch, and the, some of these aren't as deep as they, I feel like they could be, but I was going more for thematics. Sure. So my first one uh, is based on the idea the, the the thing that I picked up in, Ma- in the Mouth of Madness is about an author who's controlling a world, uh, and I liked that idea and it, the idea. Uh, and I went with uh, the Stranger Than Fiction. Ah, yes, I because I have seen Stranger Than Fiction. Great movie. I yeah, love it. because I like the idea of that this author is controlling this world, and then she doesn't want to, but she has to. Yeah, I. <laughs> I love the idea of them trying to figure out what type of book he's in in order to determine how he should handle the situation. I loved that. <laughs> uh, and I also think it'd make a really off the wall, but I think kind of appropriate double feature yeah. within the mouth of madness. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, my second option, I was going off with the Lovecraftian themes, but I didn't want to choose something too overly Lovecraft. So I went, and it's also very meta. I went with Cabin in the Woods. Mordecai, baby, what's happening? How's the weather up top? The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Well, you're, you're doing a great job out there. By the numbers, man, you got to start it off just right. So we'll talk to you later, okay? Their blind eyes see nothing of the horrors to come. Their ears are stopped. They are the gods' fools. Well, that's how it works. Cleanse them. Cleanse the world of their ignorance and sin. Bathe them in the crimson of... Am I on speakerphone? No, absolutely not. Speakerphone, no. No, I wouldn't do that. Yes, I am. I I can hear the echo. Oh, my God. uh, You're right. Hang on one second. I'll take you off. That's rude. I I don't know who's in the room. I have not seen... Oh, wait a minute. Yes, uh, that's... Whedon again, right? Or he wrote it. I have seen Cabin in the Woods. It's not explicitly Lovecraft. But if you've seen the movie, I think you might kind of know what I'm talking about with the uh, there. There's without saying the words, the old ones, there's a lot of references yeah. to it. Well, and it certainly speaks to our earlier conversation in this episode about uh, horror film tropes. I mean, that mm-hmm. that is the film of of horror tropes. <laughs> yeah. But use uh, with a great in efficiency. A, it's with, such with, a with smart reason. way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I was thinking of the Stephen King element. Okay. Which, there's a lot I can go with Stephen King, because he's the only writer who writes about writers as much as he does. <laughs> but I decided to go a different method with it and go with Monkey Bone, because Stephen King is in it. Oh, I have not seen Monkey Bone. I think, I don't, I don't know if it's actually Stephen King or if it's a person playing Stephen King. I should look that up real quick. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I can't comment about if the movie's legitimately good, but I liked it a lot as a kid. And it's about an, it's about a, it's directed by Henry Selick, which is cool. And it's about a, an artist who gets sent to hell. Is that uh, <laughs> and, starring Brendan Fraser? Yes, it is. Okay, my wife has seen that one. Um. 
And there's a great line of Stephen King where there where he's like afraid of the dark. <laughs> uh, yeah, he he gets stuck in in hell, uh, uh, in a jail cell with Attila the Hun, Jack the Ripper, and Stephen King, who's afraid of the dark. <laughs> and I want to say, um, it, oh, one it's of not the... Stephen King playing himself though, but still. Ah, I want to say um, one of the kids in the hall, Dave. One of yeah. them is in it, or maybe voices Monty Bone. I can't Dave remember. Foley. Dave yeah, Foley. He's, he's, he's in the movie, as is Rose McGowan, Whoopi Goldberg, Bridget Fonda. Nice. Uh, I liked it a lot as a kid, and I don't know if it still holds up, but <laughs> fuck. Doug, oh. Doug Jones plays a Yeti, what's not to <laughs> like. And Bob Odenkirk is in it. Uh, I got a couple more. So Monkey Bone was the last one. Um, this one is very on the nose. Okay. But I chose it with reason. Um, are you familiar with the TV show Masters of Horror? I didn't actively watch it, but I'm I'm aware of its existence. Okay, so it's the idea of it's an anthology TV show. Every episode's an hour long. It gives Tales of the master, Crypt-esque. It gives a Master of Horror a chance to do an original story. Well, essentially an hour movie. Okay. And John Carpenter did one that I really like, while a little flawed, called Cigarette Burns. Okay. And it's it stars uh uh who who who's that big dude from Walking Dead that everyone's in love with right now uh oh uh the guy that plays um I can think of the character name Daryl okay Daryl that's uh, he was in Boondock Saints too yeah um, that guy well anyways he's in this and this is like maybe right after Boondock Saints and you know he's still kind of a young pretty boy um he plays a former drug addict who is now uh uh. A rare film collector. Nice. Uh, who owns a small theater, and he finds out about this this film that uh, it, only one copy uh, was ever in existence and it was lost because the filmmaker killed himself making it, and it <laughs> drove him nuts. So a uh, a, um, a a film collector by the name uh, uh, I don't know the character's name, but it's played by Udo Kier uh, hires him to find this film print. And so he can watch it, and it, you know, uh, you, it's all tied into like arcane and angels. And okay, shit. So it's, it's very similar, cool, but different in its own right. And I think it'd make uh, it it would be um, a very appropriate double feature. And then I got one more. All right, my last one, playing into the whole author aspect of it, is uh, Dario Argento's Tenebrae. I have. It is a giallo. It is a giallo film. Uh, from the 80s uh, about an uh, an author who's uh, someone's someone's murdering people based on the, the way this that happened in his book so he's tied up into this murder mystery and Dario Argento and John Carpenter are good friends so there's some okay. similar styles what was the name of that one again? Tenebraids T-E-N-E-B-R-E okay Tenebrae cool Three out of five. So, I've seen two out of five. Not bad. Not bad. Monkey Bones, Cigarette Burns, and Tenebrae. That's not, cool. a, that's not a bad watch list right yeah. there. Um, All right. Well, why don't you tell me a little about uh, our new sponsors here and uh, the, the film you saw. All right. Well, normally I'd write something up because I love in podcasts when, I, when, they, when they write up a thing about their, their sponsors. <laughs> but I thought they... they their website says it so perfectly that I'm just going to read off their website. So, 
real quick. Vinegar Syndrome is a film restoration and distribution company with a catalog of hundreds of feature films produced primarily between the 1960s and 1980s. Founded by Ryan Emerson and Joe Rubin, Vinegar Syndrome has been acclaimed by the New York Times, Village Voice, Dangerous Minds, Fongonist Files, and many others as one of the premier independent genre film-focused distribution companies in the world and was noted by Alamo Drafthouse Theaters as perhaps the most important home video label in the world of genre films. Uh, under their What They Do uh, sec- section, it says, Our work has resulted in the digital restoration and preservation of over 500 feature films, more than any other independent studio. We also work closely with several archives and institutions, such as the Academy Film Archive, the Library of Congress, UCLA, the Walker Art Center, and more. Our in-house lab partner, OCN Digital Labs, affords us the capability to perform the highest quality digital film restorations achievable on titles that, in many cases, would otherwise deteriorate beyond the point of saving. Our goal in every restoration we do is to try and bring each film back to its original intended theatrical exhibition quality and to make the uh, the vast treasures in our archives available to fans and film lovers of all generations. What's cool is the the, the uh uh, the telecine they used to like scan the film is the one that Peter Jackson used on Lord of the Rings. Nice. <laughs> and uh, in case anyone's wondering why the name Vinegar Syndrome, their namesake is a constant reminder of what we're fighting against. Simply put, the term Vinegar Syndrome describes a chemical reaction that deteriorates motion picture film over time. Film preservation is a race against time, especially with long-neglected genres and underground films. Nice. A champion of the of the forgotten ones. Yeah, so they do a lot of uh, they do a lot of like grindhouse and uh, exploitation films, some horror stuff, and then honestly, a lot of porn. <laughs> uh, it's cool because they they do like a monthly box, and it's a it's a bit pricey. It's like eighty bucks, but you get like four or five DVDs and Blu-rays in it, uh, and um, you can actually get it shipped to you in a grindhouse canister. <laughs> One that was actually used in a theater to hold film prints. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so they are a really cool company. Uh, they just sent me a copy of the movie um, uh, Psycho Cop Returns, <laughs> which I got late too late for us to talk about on the show. But I thought uh, when I met them at a convention and um, I bought a couple films from them. Because they found out I work for Lloyd Kaufman at Troma. So they're like, well, you can't work for Troma and not have these movies in your collection. <laughs> so they cut me a good deal on some of these movies. And uh, the, first, the one, I'm also a slasher movie aficionado. Especially from 1972 to 1989. Which is like the golden age of slashers. <laughs> I, the, the revisionist slashers in the 90s don't do it as much for me. But this is one I'd never seen. And it came out the year after Friday the 13th and just a couple years after Halloween. So it's still, like, fresh. Right, yeah. It's called Graduation Day. Uh, directed in 1981 by Herb Freed, who is a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to look that guy up. <laughs> I would love to have I, a beer with him. <laughs> that, that It's just, that's all you have to know. Uh the, the plot concerns a, a, a high school track team that's being suspiciously murdered by a masked assailant after an accidental death of one of their teammates uh, occurred during a track meet. And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of a paint-by-numbers slasher film, but not in a bad way because it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, there's this coach that they, they keep um, talking about, played by Christopher George, 
who is a big name in the under in in uh, the low budget horror scene from the eighties. <laughs> um, he he pushed his team quite a bit, so much so that like one of his. Um, uh, one of his runners was trying so hard to win her race that she just fucking collapses and dies at the finish line. Okay. And she's dead up, She's dead as soon as they, they go in and check on her. But did she win and the race? Is, I believe so, okay, yes. Okay, <laughs> You can't die and be a loser. Right. <laughs> um, so what happens then is her sister returns home from the Navy to accept an award on her behalf during graduation um and she also is trying to get back at the coach so you know there's some red herrings thrown in is it is it the uh sister is it someone else is it the coach we don't know (laughs) it's in a lot of ways it's 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 your typical whodunit which i personally think are the best type of slasher films you know the slasher films where like you they they tell you who the killer is right away and then you're just watching that person kill just feel just feel kind of mean-spirited to me (laughs) like if I know, like say, say this is a slasher film, and I and they show me you killing someone, and it's just I'm watching you kill people throughout the span of the film. It seems really mean spirited, and like, well, where's the suspense? I like not knowing. I like the who done it aspect, yeah. uh, uh, and because up oh, continue for me, uh, horror for me when I enjoy it, it's all about what you don't see. It's it's what yep. you, it's about what you're wondering is on the other side of the door or calling from the other end of the. And uh, that was uh, the names escaping me. The the director of Hostel and uh, uh, Eli Roth. That's what I could never like. That dude just lays it all out there. And I guess if you're into watching like just brutality, then he's your guy. But like it, it had no mystery to it. There was never that. Oh, it, I was never scared. I was just grossed out. I will say, though, in defense of Hostel, um, not, you don't actually see as much as your brain tells you you did. Okay. Which is interesting, because uh, I rewatched it recently, and I was like, oh, I could have sworn this scene was a lot gorier, or I saw a lot more, and he's really good about deliberate cuts. Okay. Uh, and I also think the uh, while you're right, there's not a whole lot of mystery about what's being what's being done. <laughs> the last twenty minutes is really tense and interesting. But yeah, it's t- still not a great film. Tension, but some... I'll, I'll certainly grant him. <laughs> he uh, him when the one character is trying to escape the you know the place that has him kidnapped is probably the best part of the film. Okay. Um, but uh, no, graduation day is interesting because like it. Uh, it was confiscated in the UK. <laughs> While it was not prosecuted for being too obscene, it was still confiscated and during the video nasty uh, panic because there were some really like really gruesome deaths, but not in like a way like you're like oh that's so real, but more like it's so over the top and crazy, it's gross right. but it's cool <laughs> kind of like way. Um, and you get some of that style i you know again i i have not seen graduation day but um certainly in friday the 13th there those series that with him just like crushing somebody's head until their eyeball pops out and even though you can see the spring behind it as it shoots towards the screen but there's those like oh well that was clever jason good for you (laughs) yeah like something i like about jason he's a clever killer he uh if he ever get you, you never feel like the man gets bored. You can of what he's doing. you can tell he enjoys his work. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
but some specifics about this disc is they made it look gorgeous. There is no way, sh- there's no world that graduation day should have ever gotten a 4K transfer <laughs> uh, uh, presented in its original aspect ratio for the first time ever since it's been released. Because Troma put it out a couple of times, but it was never, never looked as good as it does now. Um, yeah, it's like there's no way the film should have looked as good as it did. <laughs> and, um, Oh, I'm I'm going through the features right now. Like so, so you got amazing 4K restoration, um, which came from the editor's 35 millimeter print he had laying around. <laughs> so he had a perfect pristine print just laying around. And then there's interviews with uh, the editor, which is really fascinating because he talks about like how he had to manipulate some of the scenes to add some tension and just he wanted to get kind of artsy with it. And that's the thing that's interesting about some of these early slasher films is there there is some sometimes they're made by art house directors, sure, who honestly are just trying to make a buck, but they they can't not make something creative. Right. So like he talks about his um his trying to add add some intra- interesting um editing into the film and you know they got interviews with uh, the star played by a woman named patch mckenzie which is an amazing name <laughs> and, and she's kind of great too because she's like i don't know why people still care about this movie <laughs> but i'm glad they do right. and then but then she's also talking about like how deep how deep her like since she's she was a new actor at the time how deep her uh her, her research went into sure, and how yeah. hard she was trying like this was her big break funny. yeah <laughs> yeah so it's like it's funny listening to her talk about like what made this so important to her <laughs> so um if you're a sla- if you're a fan of slasher films i i, I highly recommend graduation day because while it's got the trauma name on it it's not nearly as goofy as some trauma films are like this is I feel like this is one that's trying to take itself very seriously and it's just got this great 80s aesthetic to it that a lot of people try to try to copy but there's just something so genuine about it and no it's genuine because it was made in the <laughs> because 80s because it was literally genuine i'm always trying to figure out like what about the aesthetic it's not the clothing it's not the music there's something about the way that the films look and how they're shot and some of us to do a film stock but i'm always like what are what do these films do right versus the ones that are copying them yeah. what do they do wrong? a lot of little things i'm sure is what goes into that yeah so that one's great. Um, next episode, I want to talk about the the one they just sent me, which is their new release of uh, uh, Psycho Cop Returns. <laughs> but uh, until then, that's graduation day, and we, we can post a trailer for it on the uh, on the page. Cool. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to throw down before we wrap up here? Not really. I think this is a, this was a really uh, fulfilling episode. Yeah. Um, do we have... Have we decided on something for next episode? We have not, but since it's your... Uh, we're knocking something off of your shame list. Okay. I think... Um, I, I don't have my list in front of me, so I think we'll make it a surprise. Okay. I'm cool with a surprise. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I obviously will inform each other before it's time to watch it, but uh, it'll be a surprise for the audience. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right, anything else, Nick? I think that'll do it. Um, as always, it's been a blast. Uh, it was so great to see to have an excuse to watch In the Mouth of Madness again. I don't think we need an excuse at this point. I think this is going to be a movie that... I, I need to put something on in the background when I'm doing dishes when we put me in the mouth of madness on. 
one of my favorite uh, background noise films, uh, Creepshow. You know what? I've actually never seen Creepshow. And it's a shame because it's been on my shelf for a long time and I've had a lot of opportunity. I almost saw it in a drive-in, but it started <laughs> to rain, so I had to leave. It's I don't know. It's, it's a movie. I always tell myself, i got to put on Creepshow. I've got to put on Creepshow. I've got to put on Creepshow. I used, and then I never put on Creepshow. I used to have both one and two in on VHS in those great old, like, thick, plast, soft plastic clamshell oh, cases. Oh, the clamshells. Oh, I love yeah. the clamshells. Got those when I used to work at uh, Goodwill. We should start a band called The Clam Shells. Brilliant. Now all I have to do is learn how to play an instrument. Same. Wait, you, you do play an I, instrument. I do, yes. Just not Liar. well. Well, you could probably play better than I can. I, uh, it's going to be like that scene from uh, uh, Billy Madison. Oh, uh, you ha- you have a good day at work, Nick. So, thank you. Something else uh, Randy informed me of as we were discussing uh, the podcast is he really appreciates how we say, all right, we're going to wrap up the show, and then we talk for 15 more minutes. And he said he, <laughs> he hopes that never changes. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to end a show when, when you're like, don't, I don't know. It's just, don't know it's, what it's we're weird. doing? <laughs> no. There's not there's not a dummy's guide to podcasting right. anywhere. And if there is, it's probably just technical shit. Right. <laughs> it's not like how to actually formulate a show. Well, and I never want to stop talking to you. No, exactly. That doesn't sound weird. That sounds just completely honest. Like, like total bros. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, All right, man. Um, another good one. I look forward to the next episode when we talk about that movie we're going to watch. Yeah. Party on, Nick. Party on, Darth Michael. <laughs>